according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth, as always, comes through the scriptures. You may turn in your Bible to three places, Matthew 12, Mark 3, and Luke 8. Good luck on that. Turning to three places. Is this... This is a brand new one. That's right. Brand new one. We are uh, trying to get reacclimated to central time zone. We've only been in the central time zone for 10 hours now. If you listen to MP3, you may not have no clue that it's been two weeks, three weeks since our last time together, where we brought to a close Lesson 25 in the Galilean ministry. Episode 25 was Jesus' answer to a demand for a sign and um, where he answered that it was only an evil and adulterous generation that craves or lusts after a sign and they were not going to receive a sign except for the sign of Jonah. That what they needed was not uh, the entertainment value of a miracle. They needed to get saved. They needed to understand what the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was going to be all about. So we wrapped up that, and we're ready this morning for episode 26 in the Galilean ministry, is where Jesus' mother and his brothers are seeking an audience. Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50. We use that as our main text, but we will bring in other details from Mark and from Luke as well. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that each one of us is equipped with the Holy Spirit, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do rejoice this morning at your faithfulness in our lives day by day. We thank you for bringing our family back safely from the vacation. Thank you for uh, the ministry that took place here and the protection of the flock in our absence. Father, we have so much to rejoice over. You are the faithful one day by day and with each passing moment. Father, now on this occasion, we rejoice that we have the opportunity to assemble together and receive instruction. Pray that we might uh, have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. Pray that we might glean the spiritual truths necessary out of a passage that is so often uh, simply skipped over or passed over with uh, either very little comment, if if anything at all, or perhaps some very negative comments. And uh, I pray, Father, that we would have uh, your divine viewpoint with respect to these particular verses. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Mother and brother seeking an audience. You're probably familiar with this in case you're not. Uh, the Lord's teaching Bible class, Mary and the brothers show up and they want to talk to him. And uh, he uses that and says, well, who are my mother and my brother? And he points to the crowd and so forth. It's a very uh, perhaps well-known passage. And I think it's often taken the wrong way in that it seems to be dismissive. It seems to be negative towards Mary or towards these brothers and so forth. And, and I think that reads too much into it. The scripture doesn't say that he blew them off. It doesn't say that he ignored them. It doesn't say uh, any of that. He just used the opportunity to teach a spiritual principle. And then for all we know, as soon as class was over, he went outside and figured out what mom wanted kind of thing. So let's look at it here in Matthew chapter 12. We'll just read through verses 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister 
and mother. All right, so that's our text. Um, we finally did get reference to a sister there in verse 50. Uh, and not to leave the ladies out or anything. We've got mother. Uh, oftentimes brothers, we can render that brethren, and it's used to refer to males and female genders inclusively, that when you have a mixed company like in so many other languages, uh, you combine them and you get the masculine plural uh, pronouns. In any event, this is what we're dealing with. Mark 3, 31 through 35 is largely parallel, as is Luke 8, 19 through 21. I won't read all of those in their entirety, uh, but we will be gleaning little bits from each one of them here shortly. Now, it's been a while, isn't it, since we've seen Mary? As a matter of fact, this is the first glimpse. This episode features the first glimpse of Jesus' human mother since the water to wine, since John chapter 2, since the Lord relocated her and her other children to Capernaum just after the Cana wedding, John 2.12. Now, I searched and searched and scoured and scoured to verify this because I couldn't believe it. I said, is this really the first time we've seen Mary since then? So uh, to my knowledge, this is true. If you find an episode in between where Mary was uh, there, I'd like to know about it. There was one passage where here recently they thought that he was out of his senses, but it doesn't say Mary was involved in that. It just says his kinsmen, his relatives and so forth, that thought he was out of his senses back when he was casting out demons and uh, part of the crowd uh, accused him of doing so by the power of Beelzebub. Uh, some of his own kinsmen, probably fellow Nazarites or, or uh, Nazarenes uh, and so forth. But this is the first mention of Mary specifically since that episode in John 2.12. John 2 is where he turns the water to wine. Another passage that's largely dismissive, and we taught that very thoroughly, and I think we uh, concluded that it was not a dismissive passage, that he was not negative towards her in any way, but actually very positive towards her in, uh, in this miracle that he did. But after the miracle was done, it says, After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. And then the Passover and he and his disciples depart and we're left to understand that that his mother and his brothers remained there at Capernaum that that became his town in fact even in Mark it's called his hometown there had become Capernaum so in all likelihood that's where he settled them that's where they live that's where the the brothers would have continued the carpentry trade or whatever business it was that they were involved in most likely carpentry since that was their father's trade that was their older brother's trade so it's the first glimpse we've had Secondly, it is not known what Mary and her children wanted, and it is not important. <laughs> you can read all these commentaries, and there's no end to the speculation, which really gets me wondering, well, who cares? <laughs> if, if the Holy Spirit didn't feel it was necessary to include it in Matthew or Mark or Luke, all three of which recorded this episode, well, then you know what? It, it doesn't really matter, does it? Because he had three gospel opportunities to record this, four if you count John, but three that actually recorded this episode and none of them chose to give the reasons for why it was. And, and it may have been nothing earth shatteringly important. It might have been nothing more than just something family oriented. It might have been who knows anything. The fact is, though, is that, that Jesus still had a family life at the same time that he was in ministry. 
And it's the ministry that gets recorded in Scripture that's God-breathed and profitable for our edification. You know, if, if Mary's trying to just remind him that they've got an appointment tonight for uh, family photos or whatever, well, then that's fine, and it doesn't need to be recorded in the Gospels. So it's not important. The language, though, is interesting. Um, in Luke, it says that they wished to see him. They wished to see him. That the language of wishing is there. That it was their desire, it was their purpose. And the object of that wishing, the object of their, of their seeking, actually, was to observe or to see him. And you start to wonder, well, how long has it been? <laughs> Maybe... If he and his disciples were traipsing all over Galilee from different places, here comes an episode where um, he is nearby, where he's back in Capernaum or close to it, and he's got some ministry going on, and Mary says, hey, your brother's in town, right? Let's, uh, let's see if we can spend some time with him. Let's see if we can see him. Keeping in mind, of course, that these brothers are all unbelievers still. So they're not all excited about going to Bible class or or uh, whatever it is that their older brother happens to be doing with that crowd of ragtag disciples that he seems to have gathered around himself and all the rest. So they wished to see him. That's the Luke emphasis. In Matthew, um, yes, in Matthew, they wished to speak with him. Slightly different. The, same, the language is identical in terms of their seeking. And the idea of seeking is, a, is that pursuit, that they were not going to let go until they obtained what it was they were chasing after. This is the idea of, of a pursuit where you're chasing after it with the intention of laying hold of it. And so they, they were pursuing uh, the opportunity to see him. They were pursuing the opportunity to speak with him. We're also told, if we read the Luke account, let's turn over to Luke 8 and peek at it here a little bit, verses 19 and 20, that, the re, that it's often said that, that they stayed outside because well, the brothers didn't have any interest in going into Bible class anyway, but that they maybe they got there late or whatever, and Mary didn't want to interrupt. And that's probably true. If he's teaching Bible class, I'm sure she didn't want to interrupt. And she could have simply waited till he was done or sent word that when he was done that they were waiting for him, that kind of thing. But we're told in Luke 8, page is a little slow this morning. I'm rusty. Isn't that terrible? Not really. I taught four times. Um, Luke 8. And verse 19. His mother and his brothers came to him and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. So we have this idea that, you know what, maybe they would have gone inside if except for the fact that it was already standing room only and you couldn't get through the door kind of thing. And so verse 20, it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. And there's the language of wishing with uh, to see him there in verse 20. So thirdly, they were unable to get inside because of the crowded conditions. They were unable to get inside because of the crowded conditions. You know, they got a small parking lot and they're parked up and down Aggie Lane or whatever it is they're doing. Can't fit in the auditorium, so they're sitting in the overflow. They can't fit in the overflow. So now where do they go? See. And uh, and you have to wonder how much time did he have with uh, with his family, with Mary and with the siblings and so forth when he was traveling and on the road so much. And it's not like we have the, they had the modern transportation we have today where you could be, you know, all over the state or all over the country and whatever and still make it home by dinner time. You know, when you traveled, you were gone for days, weeks, months on end. 
And so it's kind of interesting to note, I do observe and I firmly believe that when Jesus Christ entrusted Mary to John on the cross, rather than one of his brothers, it's, it's indicative of the fact that they still were not saved and he was not going to put his mother uh, as a widow into the uh, hands of unbelievers, even though that they were her own sons. And so she handed, he handed Mary off to her nephew, John, Jesus' cousin, John, and said, John, behold your mother. And, and it was the apostle John that took care of Mary from that point forward even though the boys do get saved here very quickly after the resurrection. Then fourthly, they sent and called, and inside it was reported to him. They didn't interrupt the proceedings. They actually just sent a message in, and they waited outside until such time as he could come out. They sent and called. The language of sent, sending, is apostello, the language of calling. Uh, in other words, offering that invitation. Many are called. It's that language of, a, of an invitation. And so they've offered it. They've let him know that they're there and he can come out when he's, when he's done. Inside, it was reported to him. So however that works, it was obviously a lot different back then. They would go for hours at a time. They would take various breaks for meals or beverages and so forth. And then they would continue on and go... Uh, for a considerable amount of time. Obviously, now I'm assuming it was during one of those little breaks that they got word to him, by the way, your mother and your brothers are outside and, and, uh, and that. Now, when he, when he makes this statement about who are my mother and my brothers, we don't want to take this negatively. So many commentators take this negatively, and that's not right. And um, some of that, I think, was just simply... <laughs> Uh, a consequence of the Reformation more than anything. A lot of Protestant scholars were really trying to point to things like that and say and, and use that as, as part of their evidence against the Roman position that was glorifying Mary so much. And uh, so this passage kind of became a, uh, a football in the, in the back and forth debate between Romans and Protestants and so forth about, about Mary and about whether she was supposed to be so exalted and about whether his brothers were actually his brothers or not. And, of course, the Romans would say, oh, no, those aren't his brothers uh, because Mary was an eternal virgin, right? And the Protestants would say, well, no, she wasn't a perpetual eternal virgin. Those were his brothers that and were born after Jesus and so forth. I'm going to have some notes on that coming up this morning. But this passage has been so such a hot potato since the 15th century, 16th century Reformation, that I think... A lot of the commentary that's come since then has kind of been uh, tinted, perhaps, in uh, for whatever reason. And and uh, I just don't see, as I go through this, I don't see the, the negative attitude with respect. It's just an opportunity. And it's something we've seen time and time and time again. He casts out a demon. They say, you did that by Beelzebub. And so he uses that as an opportunity to... Give gospel truth to give information. Something else happens. He uses that as an opportunity. Uh, you know, a widow's son dies, brings him back to life, uses that as an opportunity. Everything that came his way, he used as an opportunity. And I don't see this as being any different than that. Where it's reported to him, your mother and your brothers are outside. He says, oh, really? Well, let me tell you about my mother and my brothers. And he uses that as an opportunity to be able to teach a spiritual truth. We'll get to that under point four. Before we do, though, let's spend some time on this family. Jesus had four brothers. And we don't know how many sisters, but at least two, because they're referred to in the plural. Jesus had four brothers and plural sisters. Jesus had four brothers and plural sisters. 
And if you go one more chapter over to chapter 13 of Matthew, verses 55 to 56, we'll see this on a second trip back to Nazareth. He's already had one. This will be his second time back to Nazareth. Interesting. Another one of these no honor in your hometown kind of things. When he had finished the parables, he departed from there. It says in verse 53, he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? So not only was his teaching having impact, but the miracles that he could do were, were inescapable, undeniable. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Notice plural. Don't know how many. At least two, maybe 102. We don't know. Any number of sisters. Are, not, are they not all with us? Now, there's a distinction between the sisters are with us and the brothers are just simply named. And... Um, I don't believe the brothers were still with them. I believe the brothers were in Capernaum uh, with Mary at that point. But the sisters, in all likelihood, were married to Nazarene, you know, men from Nazareth. And so, uh, and so they didn't get relocated to Capernaum. They stayed in Nazareth with their new husbands. But his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their apostia, their unbelief. Okay, and we'll have a lot more to say on that. We're going to talk about unbelief, disbelief, because it is an active verb. It is different. It is the antithesis of belief, of believing. And uh, there is, we've got to deal with the fact that when you fail to believe, you're not just failing to exercise faith. You are actually actively accomplishing the opposite. You are disbelieving. And there is no sin of omission with respect to believing because failing to believe is actually an active verb called disbelieving. And that's something that we'll have to deal with not only in this context, but for a lot of other reasons. All right. Just in case you've got Catholic friends and they're really struggling with this kind of thing and you want to know, well, how do I talk to them about this? <clears throat> See, ever since Jerome, which goes back to the 5th century, um, They've, they've really worked this verse over, and they've translated brothers as kinsmen to take a more generalized, loose kind of role for Adelphos. That an Adelphos, yes, it normally is a literal brother, but it could also be you know, a broader term for any kinsman, a cousin or male relative and so forth. And so they try to take this very gen, uh, generally as uh, as as uh, kinsmen because they don't want to accept the fact that Mary might have had additional children after Jesus. And so uh, he he postulates that uh, Jerome wrote that actually these were these were brothers of Joseph from a first wife before he married Mary, that Joseph had a wife. They had these four sons and whatever daughters. And then whoever that first wife was, they even come up with a name for uh, that. She died and then. He was, he was engaged to the Virgin Mary and so forth and, and so on. There's a fatal flaw to that in the fact that that would have then removed Jesus Christ from the lineage, or not from the lineage, but from the heirship to David. 
because the older brothers born to the first wife would have been in that line from David to Solomon down to Joseph down to the legal line from Joseph down to, uh, in this case, James, his oldest brother. James would have been the heir of David at that point. James wasn't the heir of David. Jesus was the heir of David, the rightful claimant to the throne of Israel. So these siblings cannot be uh, descendants of Joseph's first wife, you know, before Mary. And uh, then there's other speculations, too, on, on where they might have come from, cousins and, and different things. Uh, the normal view, though, is that, no, these are the babies that Joseph and Mary had after the birth of Jesus Christ. Um, but if you want some verses to kind of explain this, Mary was only kept virgin until the birth of Jesus, and it says that in Matthew one twenty five. Matthew 1.25 specifically details the end of Mary's virginity. Yeah, I don't care if a church council in the 14th century decreed that uh, Mary was a perpetual eternal virgin. Matthew 1 and verse 25 says otherwise. This verse pinpoints the end of her virginity. Matthew chapter 1 is where Joseph finds out that his fiancée is pregnant. He has suspicions, of course, as any young man would. Uh, but an angel shows up and says, nope, you're wrong. He says, I know what you're thinking, but it's not what you're thinking. He says, uh, Mary is still a virgin. She's not been unfaithful. She, uh, you are going to marry her. You're going to raise this child. But this child is born of the Holy Spirit, that this is the Messiah. And uh, Joseph wakes up from his dream and responds in faith. And I love that in verse 24. See, Joseph doesn't doubt, doesn't deny, doesn't ask questions. He just wakes up and obeys. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin. So he took her as a wife, but kept her a virgin for the nine months or eight months or whatever was left of the pregnancy. Uh, We don't know how many months might have gone by here, but obviously nine months is the maximum, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. So that gives the limit. That's, that's as long as Joseph kept her a virgin. After the birth of the son, they had a normal marriage after that. They had other children after that. If, if, if she was a perpetual eternal virgin, then the uh, inspired word of God, the God-breathed inspired word of God in verse 25 there would have said he kept her a virgin forever. For her whole life, for their entire marriage. And she never had children. But no, it says he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. In my mind, that verse right there answers everything. There's another verse that I think is also almost as strong. Jesus was her firstborn son. Not her only son. Her firstborn son in Luke 2, 7. I'm a firstborn son. Let's see who else here. Gary, Bob, Sean. Got some firstborn sons here. But the the term firstborn isn't properly applied if you're an only. Firstborn implies additional. That until uh, until the second son comes along, you're not a firstborn son, you're an only son. I guess you could maybe refer to an only son as a firstborn son. But it is rather uh it is rather hinting, if nothing else. It's rather implied, certainly. And when you put it together, Matthew one twenty-five, I think it's inescapable. What do we know about these brothers? Well, we know, I keep mentioning this, these brothers were not even saved 
until after the resurrection. These brothers were not even saved until after the resurrection. John 7, 5, we see they're unbelievers six months before the cross. I think it's six months, October to uh, April. Is that six months? Yeah. And uh, But then in Acts 1, 14, they're in the upper room along with the other apostles, the believers, the leading women, and so forth. Let's look at those. John 7. These brothers were not even saved until after the resurrection. John chapter 7. So I know many of us struggle. We want to be a witness to our family. We, we think, why can't we present the gospel? Why can't we see these people saved? You know, what are we doing wrong? Don't I have the right witness? Am I not using the right words? Am I not? What is it? Why is it that I still have family members after all these years that are unregenerate? They're going to die and go to hell. Why can't they see the gospel? Why can't I get them saved? You know, and it's frustrating. We know the doctrine, of course, that we can't, you know, we can't force them. We don't do any of the work anyway. And, and it's going to be up to the Holy Spirit to convict and the Father to draw and all those things to take place. But when I read this, you think, well, now here's the Lord Jesus Christ. What was wrong with him? <laughs> was he a terrible witness to his brothers? Of course not. Did he have any trouble giving them the gospel? Can't imagine that. <laughs> and yet four of them. He was 0 for 4 with these boys. You know, when you go 0 for 4, that's a rotten batting average. And, uh, you know, if you count him in it, then that's one out of five brothers that were saved. That's, that's batting 200. It's hard to stay on a major league team if you can't bat better than 200. John chapter 7. How far are we from John chapter 7? Oh, we're away still. comes up we've got to finish the Galilean ministry and then this Feast of Tabernacles is the first event of the last Judean and Prean ministry so it's not too far down the road after these things Jesus was walking in Galilee for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him now the feast of the Jews the feast of booths was near Therefore, his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things and notice their skepticism, show yourself to the world. See, they've got all these ideas about how he can build a bigger ministry that hanging around Galilee wasn't the way to do it. That if he really wanted to make a name for himself, it had to be in Jerusalem. It was the only place. It's like, you know, if you're an actor, you're going to be in show business, you know, why stick in the middle of nowhere? You've got to get to Hollywood. You've got to get to Broadway. You've got to get to whatever. You've got to get to the center, the pinnacle of your, of your particular field where you can get the maximum exposure. And they knew it wasn't Galilee. They knew even Capernaum, the biggest city in Galilee, wasn't, was small potatoes compared to the big time there in Jerusalem where the temple was located, where the, the great schools of the Pharisees could be found, where the Sanhedrin was seated, where, where the... Uh, the centrality of the Jewish religion was featured. Now, these guys aren't religious. They're unbelievers. I'm sure they'd made the pilgrimage to observe the Passover and do the, do the nod to God uh, duty as a, you know, an external ritual kind of thing. But they're not regenerate. They have no basis for, for living the reality of what they were doing. And they've got all these ideas about what he needs to do to build a bigger ministry. Which I find amusing. Same thing takes place today. People are always giving you all these wonderful ideas for what to do and in your ministry. Well, figure the Lord will work that out. For not even his brothers were believing in him. That's verse 5. 
So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. What a distinction. They had a different time than him. They were living in a different world. They were living of, in the world and of the world. And it is now their time. This is the world system in which we live. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Where you and I live and function today on a daily basis, this is the adversary's world. We need a hymn that reflects that. <laughs> we sing, this is my father's world, right? That's a true, that is a true hymn. I'm not disputing that. But presently, my father's world is currently under the usurper's dominion. And it will be until such time as he's cast down and the dominion is handed to Jesus Christ. So uh, somehow we need to have a hymn that says, this is uh, your father, the devil's world, and have some kind of a hymn written to unbelievers about the fact that their time is always opportune. That they are living in the season of their cosmos activity. But that season is drawing to a close. This world, is, this cosmos is passing away and along with it, it's lost. So this opportune season is passing. And if they continue in their unbelief, then that's where they're headed. They ought to take this opportunity, obviously, to receive the gospel. So the brothers were not even saved until after the resurrection. Now, it's, it is interesting. It's a different story in Acts chapter 1. And uh, verse 14, we'll start reading in verse 12. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Now, this is after the ascension here. <clears throat> They're all excited. I mean, he put them through the cross and they were all in anguish over that. And then finally, they were convinced of his resurrection. They've had 40 days now of him to teach them after the resurrection. And then finally, in verse six, they were they come together. They were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? They were so wrapped up in the kingdom. Can we finally get to this kingdom thing now? <laughs> and he says, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the father is fixed by his own authority. See, not even the son knows this is the father's privilege, the father's um, purview when he decides to send the son back for the rapture of the church. We don't know when that's going to be. Somebody wrote a book said it was going to be this year at the Feast of Trumpets. Well, sorry, we missed that. That was back in September. September 22nd was the Feast of Trumpets, 2006. I was kind of disappointed. Um, could have had an opportunity to uh, not have that second plane ride back to Austin. But no, missed the rapture. How about that? No one knows. No one knows. I'm convinced that if somebody writes a book saying it's going to be on this day, it's not going to be on that day. The Father's going to say, forget it. No one knows the day or the hour. <clears throat> so he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even in the remotest parts of the earth. Now he's talking to the twelve at that point. But he's got other witnesses beyond the twelve and they're going to, when they're filled with the Holy Spirit, this is going to be their function. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. And I know while I was gone and Dr. Price taught on the rapture and, and so forth, he was caught up in the clouds. He's going to be returned in, the exact the same, in exactly in the same way. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, I can just imagine, you know, up he goes and there's 12 disciples, 11 disciples all just going, you know, looking up like geese in the rain or some other dumb animal. All right. And they're looking up in the sky. Is it geese or turkeys that actually drown in the rain? Turkeys, okay. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him. And I'm 
thinking that it's probably the same uh, sarcastic angels that were there saying, why do you seek the living among the dead? You know, and here they show up saying, why are you standing there looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And so then this very mountain, on Mount Olivet, this is where Christ is going to return at a second advent. He will actually land on the Mount of Olives. It will be split with the earthquake and all of that. So they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which was near Jerusalem on a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered the city, they went to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John. Here's your Dodecapostolog, the list of the twelve. These, verse 14, all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women. Remember those leading women we studied not too long ago, Susanna and, and uh, Joanna and uh, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, and look who shows up with his brothers. With his brothers. What were they doing? Continually devoting themselves to prayer with one mind. Now, the brothers could not have engaged in that activity unless they got saved in between John chapter 7 and Acts chapter 1. So where did that happen? I think we got a clue, though, in Matthew 28. We'll look at that here in a moment. So, um, and then at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren and so forth. Now, these brothers were not even saved until after the resurrection, but became apostles during the dispensation of the church. I believe all four. I can prove two of them. My thinking is that all four of them became apostles. I can prove two of them because they wrote books of the Bible. But I'm thinking all four because of the way that they're lumped together in a couple of passages. They became apostles during the dispensation of the church. Now remember, a qualification of a disciple is you had to be an eyewitness of an apostle was that you had to be an eyewitness of everything from the baptism of John all through the resurrection and ascension. Now, these brothers qualified, although most of their eyewitnessing was done as unbelievers. Stop to consider. And I think that also is kind of an interesting commentary on what was it that Saul of Tarsus observed as an unbeliever before his salvation event. If he was, I mean, clearly he was old enough as a student to, uh, to be watching these things take place in his childhood. Matthew 28, the last chapter of Matthew. After the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. <laughs> Did he have to do that? He could have sat anywhere or just stood there. Do angels get tired? But he wanted to actually sit on the very stone that was no longer in front of the tomb. So that in case, I mean, these disciples are pretty thick. So in case they missed the fact that the stone had rolled away, he was sitting right there. Okay, Hard to miss the big stone with the angel sitting on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell... Now notice, his disciples. That's the first group. Go quickly and tell his disciples 
that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, and behold, I have told you. So that's disciples. And the women are instructed to go tell the disciples. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word. But now notice, To my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, we have to ask the question, is the brethren he's referencing there, is that the same as the disciples that the angel was referencing in verse 7? We have disciples that are mentioned in verse 7, disciples that are mentioned in verse 8. The angel sent these women off to go get the disciples, right? And to tell the disciples that he's going ahead of you into Galilee. But then they meet Jesus on the way. And he says, go get my brethren. Okay. Now the term brethren is unfortunate because I believe that was done to try to identify the brethren in verse 10 with the disciples in verses 7 and verse 8. It's actually the term brothers. Why is it that in the English they decide, well, we're going to translate it brothers here, but we're going to translate it brethren here. What's the difference between brothers and brethren? Just Middle English versus Modern English, (laughs) right? You want to be Elizabethan? Call it brethren. You want to be Modern English? Call it brothers, okay? I believe that verse 10 is referencing the human brothers, the earthly brothers, These women have already been instructed to go get the disciples. Go get the disciples, send them to Galilee, Jesus will meet them there. Having already been instructed to go get the disciples, Jesus catches them on the way and says, bring my brothers also. Bring my brothers also. May not be, I might be wrong on that. Um, It may be, it's open to linguistic interpretation and you can... Translate that however you like. But I think the context, when you have disciple in verse 7, disciple in verse 8, and then a separate term, where we have brethren there in verse 10, that is not referring to the same group. Why would he show up then otherwise? Think about it. If this is disciples, and the angel already said, go get the disciples, then why did Jesus interrupt? Why did he even show up to these women and say, are you going to go get my disciples? And the women were like, well, yeah, the angels told us to. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Right? So, no, it wasn't redundant. It wasn't unnecessary. If he wanted the disciples there, he didn't have to do anything because the angel already had them fetching the disciples. See? But here was an additional matter that in addition to getting these disciples, Peter and Andrew and those guys, go get my brothers. All right? And, uh, and I think that's significant. One last passage I think that ties in well with this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to see a couple of passages here in 1 Corinthians, mainly with James, but others. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Remember, we have the liberty in chapter 8, unless, of course, your liberty is a stumbling block, and then you don't have any liberty. Love takes over, and you, you want to build up your brother. Paul uses himself as the illustration in chapter 9 about how he exercises Christian liberty. He says, am I not free? Of course. Am I not an apostle? I want you to see this now. 
when he defines, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? It was a requirement of an apostle, an eyewitness of the resurrection. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. I mean, he showed up in Corinth with nothing and, and built a church there and trained pastors and all of that. I mean, obviously, the fruit of an apostle was them. As messed up as they were, they were a church of Gentiles and, and Jews together, one body in Christ, in Corinth. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? You're going to put legalistic rules on what the apostle can drink? If he's going to eat the meat sacrificed to idol, you're going to tell him he's wrong? If he's going to drink alcohol, you're going to tell him he's wrong? He's an apostle. Uh, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? Even as, now notice, the rest of the apostles. Now, if you take that, as the, the rest of the apostles, that would include obviously the twelve, but then other apostles beyond the twelve, including him and including Barnabas, including the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, or Peter. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? He says, are Barnabas and I the only apostles that, that have to live by these special rules you're trying to make up? So here... In a, in a passage that is centered around apostles, we have a listing that includes the brothers of Jesus Christ. And I find that to be compelling. So uh, the rest of the apostles includes the twelve, the apostles of the Lamb. Remember, Matthias was the replacement for Judas Iscariot. So we still have the twelve, and, but we also have apostles beyond the twelve. And I think by the listing of the brothers of the Lord, uh, Cephas, Barnabas, and I, we see, you know, Paul wasn't one of the twelve. Barnabas wasn't one of the twelve. The brothers of the Lord weren't one of the twelve, any of the twelve. Okay? And so uh, we have the listing here. I'll have more to say on this because James specifically is called an apostle and we have absolute verses that point to that. So James is, is beyond dispute, I think, and Jude for similar reasons. Uh, but I have reason to believe that all four of them, even Simon, even Joseph, we don't know anything about those two, but um, I think these passages indicate that they became apostles. What other spiritual gift would you think they'd have in the church age? They were eyewitnesses of the, the entire life, ministry, death, re burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. So I think apostle is uh, pretty, pretty appropriate there. James, let's start with James. The one we know the best. We're teaching the book of James. Cliff Beverages on Sunday nights. James or Jacob. In the Greek, it's Jacobos. In English, it's James. In Greek, it's Jacobos. Hebrew, Yaakov. 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 Here we go. Make sure I pronounce my name correctly. Yaakov. Jacobos in Greek, James. It's actually the name Jacob. Jacob and James are the same name. Absolutely the same name. Same name in Greek, same name in Hebrew, same name um, in many languages. They come across as both Jacob and James in the English because of a uh, funny thing that takes place in the Latin. Latin had a term Jacobus. But there was a late Latin variant that turned a lot of B's into M's. 
And so late in the Latin language, there were a lot of Jacobuses with M's. Jacobuses. And rather than Jacobus, it was Jacobus. And then uh, you can't even get to English until you pass through French, Norman French. In Norman French, the name Jacobus and the name Jacobus, the Latin Jacobus, had become Gemmes. G-E-M-M-E-S. Gemmes. And it was a short trip from Gemmes to James after William the Conqueror invaded England. And the Norman French influence on the English language then shaped everything that came thereafter. So it's kind of a puzzle of history why all of these Jacobuses, Jacobs, are James in the English language. No problem with calling them Jacob in the Old Testament. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Old Testament, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and James. Could have been, if you want to use that term. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in the New Testament, we take all of our Jacobs and we call him James, which is interesting. And English is not the only language that does that either. The Vulgate did the same thing in Latin. They made a distinction between Old Testament Jacob and New Testament James. Uh, the French Bible, German Bible, Martin Luther's Bible, almost every Bible out there did a difference between the Old Testament Jacob and the New Testament James. Maybe that's a favor. I don't know. <laughs> they could have done that with Joseph. We could have... Save some confusion. You got the Old Testament Joseph, you know, that rose up to sit on Pharaoh's throne. And you got the New Testament Joseph that married Mary and raised Jesus. And we talk about Joseph. Well, which Joseph? Old Testament Joseph, New Testament Joseph. So, well, we don't have that mystery with Jacob because the New Testament Jacob, we just call him James. And it kind of resolves the uh, resolves the conclusion or the confusion. Anyway, if there is a myth out there that the only reason it was translated James was because the King James, uh, you know, translators wanted to honor the king, you know, by throwing a bunch of Jameses there in the New Testament. That's not true. It's a myth. There's an actual, the Jacobus had become James long before King James, and it was uh, an interesting story there. What do we know about James? Well, he was uh, a pillar in Jerusalem. We're going to Look at all four of these brothers, and depending on how much time we have, we'll, uh, we'll get into it at the, at the conclusion of this service and move on to wrap this up next week. But of these four brothers, James is the one we know the most about because he's featured throughout the book of Acts. He's referenced in Galatians. He's referenced in 1 Corinthians, and he wrote his own book, <laughs> the book of James. But we know more about James than any of the other four called a pillar in Jerusalem. So in Galatians 2.9, Acts 12.7, and Acts 15. And I think we want to take them in that order, even though Galatians comes after Acts. Let's take them in that order. Galatians chapter 2. Now think about what a testimony of grace this is. The man wasn't even saved till after the resurrection. Receives the Holy Spirit with the rest of the church at Pentecost after the ascension discovers his gift as an apostle in the dispensation of the church. Although he's not an apostle of the Lamb, he's not one of the twelve, nevertheless he's an apostle. And he has ministry right here in Jerusalem. Galatians 2.9. Now this talks about a trip that he made to Jerusalem. He says, After an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. This is describing 
his uh, trip to Jerusalem, after his salvation in Damascus, after his three and a half years of training in the wilderness, after the return to Damascus and continued ministry there, but 14 years after his salvation, after the, we'll just call it the, uh, the Damascus Road Incident. How about that? We'll call it the, the DRI, Damascus Road Incident, usually thought of as Paul's salvation. At 14 years after the Damascus Road Incident, he and Barnabas and Titus went to Jerusalem. Why? Because of a revelation that I went up and submitted to them the gospel which I preached. See, apostles didn't exactly, couldn't exactly do what they wanted all day, every day. When a revelation came to them, they had to obey. They were kind of like the Old Testament prophets. If the word of the Lord came to them saying, go to Jerusalem and meet with the apostles there, they'd better pack their bags and go. Because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. He already had discernment to know that there was some legalism creeping in among the Jews there in Jerusalem and that there could be some antagonism towards his ministry directed towards the Gentiles. And I like the way that he had discernment with his fellow apostles, with his peers, and he met with them privately so as, so as not to allow for any divisions, any schisms, anything outwardly to be observed by the flock so as not to cause issues where they weren't necessary. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Paul wouldn't stand for that. He was a Greek. No point in circumcising. Later on, he'll have Timothy circumcised because he's half Jewish. There might be a question there of conscience. And so to kind of answer that, he went ahead and had Timothy circumcised, but not Titus. And so it describes this. It was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. They're under angelic conflict, and Paul recognizes that, and he's able to act accordingly. Now it goes down here, and it says, um, verse 6, those who have reputation. And um, verse 7, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. Verse 9, recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, Cephas is Peter, and John, who are reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. Okay, now this is James, the brother of Jesus Christ. It's not James, the brother of John. Remember James and John, the sons of Zebedee? James, the brother of John, has already been beheaded at this point. Herod's already taken him out. He was the first martyr. He's gone. This is James, the half-brother of our Lord, with Peter and the apostle John. The three of them formed to be, uh, that had somehow, I rather, received this title as pillars in the Jerusalem church. All right, now we can get over to Acts. Acts chapter 12. We're making good time this morning. Am I going too fast? <laughs> I'm out of practice. Acts 12. You'll notice in the first part of this chapter, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. All right, so it's not, that's not the James that, with Peter and John that are pillars of the church in Jerusalem. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he 
proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this is where Peter can break out of jail but can't break into a prayer meeting in uh, Acts chapter 12. We get down to verse 17. And uh, this is where the servant girl doesn't believe it's him. And in verse 16, Peter continued knocking. When they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Report these things to James and the brethren. He doesn't say, this is Peter talking now. He doesn't say, report these things to John. But it's James and the brethren. If Peter, James, and John are now pillars of this church, he could have said to John and the brethren, but he says to James and the brethren that he is a pillar, not only one of three pillars, but actually he is the leader of the, of the Jerusalem church over Peter, of all things. So much for <laughs> being the first pope. All right. James is the leader of this Jerusalem church. And uh, Rome hadn't even been founded as a church yet. And uh, then in chapter 15, so you got James and the brethren there. Then chapter 15, they hold a conference. They finally got to decide, you know what? We got to figure out, we got to deal with these legalists. We got to, we got to solve this, this Jew and Gentile thing. We can't have it. We should be united in Christ. We shouldn't be forcing these Gentiles to get circumcised or to obey Moses. They're not under the law. They're under grace. And so they have this, this great uh, conference here. And you'll notice the order on this. The apostles and the elders came together in verse 6 to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, and he gives his message after much debate. We have, uh, there's a general debate among all the apostles and elders, but then as it concludes, this is the order. But Peter has a concluding statement. And um, about Barnabas and Paul, the things that are happening with the Gentiles. And then all the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Peter has a word. They bring Barnabas and Paul to testify. But look who closes the conference, who gives the final decision on this matter. It's James in verse 13. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me, Simeon, which is Cephas, which is Peter, which is a man with way too many names, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And remember, Peter's the one that went to Cornelius' house. All right? And so it goes on down. But the final word, all the way through verse 21, is James. The last word on the matter in this conference as the number one accountable Angelos messenger to the Jerusalem church is James. It's not Peter, it's not John, it's not any of the apostles of the Lamb. It's the apostle James, half-brother of Jesus Christ, the head of this church here at Jerusalem. And so once he gives his word in verse 21, then it is, it is ratified by everybody in verse 22. It seemed good to the apostles and elders and so forth. But the final decision, the leadership in this conference was James. So he was a pillar in Jerusalem. He was called as an apostle. Called an apostle. Much to the chagrin of those that want to say that only the twelve were real apostles and that Matthias didn't count. Paul was the third, Paul was the twelfth. And it's only those twelve and no more. Really, it's a, a weak argument. First Corinthians nine five we've already looked at. Let's go to First Corinthians fifteen seven. 
where we see clearly that James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, is an apostle. I mean, yes, is an apostle. Half-brother. They share the same human mother. Of course, Jesus didn't have a human father. Joseph, though, was the birth father for James and Jude and Simon and Joseph. And whatever daughters were there as well. 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, let's see, verse 3. I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. You see, this is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a documented historical fact. Documented historical fact. By any standard you want to accept. You want to accept a literary standard, a historic standard, a legal standard, something that can stand up in a court of law, a written document written during the lifetime of witnesses who can verify the effect. If none of that was true, then the people who received this letter would have immediately known it, that Paul was spouting a bunch of lies. But because the eyewitnesses were still living and the people who received this letter in Corinth understood that, we have testimony, documented testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then he appeared to James, a personal one-on-one appearance to James, then to all the apostles. See, the apostles have to be more than just the twelve, more than just James, more than just uh, his brothers, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Last of all, if, if somebody comes up to you today in 2006 AD and tells you they're an apostle, they're lying. Because the last one ever called as an apostle was Paul. If there's an apostle on the planet today, he was called to his apostolic gift prior to Paul being called to his apostolic gift. And since that occurred in the mid in late 30s AD... <laughs> We don't believe that anybody walking the planet today qualifies. And we know for a fact that John was the last living apostle when he died just after, shortly after 100 AD. So I think that's pretty clear. He appeared to James. Why was that one-on-one -on -one appearance? Why did he appear to his brothers? Why in Matthew 28 did he direct those women to not only bring the disciples, but bring his brothers as well for a post-resurrection appearance, teaching ministry during the 40 days of his See, some people don't realize Jesus ministered for 40 days after his resurrection, before the ascension. Ten days prior to Pentecost. All right. Uh, one more. Galatians. Galatians 1.19. We were just in Galatians. Could have saved time, but let's look at it again. Galatians 1.19. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Galatians. Now, here's another trip. Three years later, I went up to Jerusalem. Oh, we were in chapter 2. That's where we were. Three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him for 15 days. What an opportunity. Just hung out with Peter for 15 days. Imagine there were some stories there. <laughs> we don't know. It's not recorded. What did they do for those 15 days? I bet you they had a blast. If you're grace-oriented, you can have a lot of fun with other believers. But I did not see any other of the apostles except 
James, the Lord's brother. Now, what does that tell you? He is an apostle. If he says, I saw, I stayed with Peter for 15 days, but I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Well, let's take the, uh, the plain sense. The plain sense makes sense. Don't look for any other sense. So, uh, called as an apostle. He's a pillar in Jerusalem, called as an apostle. Finally, he's author of the book of James. Author of the book of James. I, I don't think it's debatable. Some people will debate it, but I don't. Nobody I know does. Either we don't know who wrote it, or, you, you know, James, the first James, son of Zebedee, was, was killed too early. He couldn't have written the book. And uh, James the Less. <laughs> we really think it was James the Less? What do we know about James the Less? Nothing. Okay? Other than he was an apostle. No, much more likely it was this apostle. It was the half-brother of Jesus Christ who gave the final word in the Acts 15 pastor's conference who uh, was such a uh, pillar in the church and uh, author of the book of James. And that was the, the undisputed testimony of the church fathers from the very earliest of times. All right, next week we will come back. We will look at Joseph, Judas, and Simon. We'll talk about the other descendants of not Jesus and Mary Magdalene. They had no babies, but these brothers did. James and Jude and Joseph and, and Simon they had children and grandchildren and other descendants and so forth. And we'll talk about those who were actually blood relatives to the Savior through the early church history, at least. And, uh, and then we'll come back to what really the main point of this message is, is that, okay, fine, you got an earthly family, but you got a spiritual family. And that's where we can find our, our greatest blessing. So we'll deal with that. Father, thank you for everything. Thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for... Um, all that you do for us moment by moment, you are faithful and we praise your name. In Christ's name, amen.